are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, which include the following two topics. The Old Law, Imperfect but Good, and second, the New Law, Spirit, Grace, and Freedom. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here's Dr. George speaking about the Old Law, Imperfect but Good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. In speaking of the new covenant and new law in Christ, St. Paul wants his listeners to understand their relationship to the law under the former covenant, especially the Jewish converts to Christianity who struggled with this at the beginning, trying to understand if the law had been completely abrogated, why it was they were not to obey the juridical observances of the old law, St. Paul was trying to get them to understand that the signs and shadows of the former law and covenant are now completed in Christ, and that the truths, however, which God revealed, the fundamental principles and truths of the covenant of the law, those remain so because what God reveals is permanent, is truth forever. So he begins then in chapter 7 by explaining man's relationship to the law under the former covenant. And he does something in this letter similar to what he did when he wrote his letter to the Galatians. He uses a comparison. Because in point of fact, we often come to a better understanding of something by comparing two things which are similar in many ways, although ultimately they're not exactly the same, but the similarities are such that it can help us understand the matter that he's speaking of. So he starts by referring to the covenant of marriage. Now Israel understood that marriage was a nuptial covenant. God institutes marriage at the beginning of time in the creation of Adam and Eve. And so Israel understood marriage to be a permanently binding and irrevocable covenant, an institution established by God. Marriage is instituted by God at the beginning, and in Christ, in the new covenant of Christ, of course, it is elevated to a sacrament. But what God reveals about marriage in the beginning 
is so until the end of time. Now the comparison he makes is to a husband, that the law is like a husband. And as he says, a married woman, in verse 2, for instance, is bound to her husband by law as long as he lives. Now they understood this. Not only is the woman bound then to her husband by law, there is a way in which the spouse, the bride, this is part of what is revealed also at the beginning of time, that the bride must be faithful to her husband and subject to her husband who is head. This is mysterious language. It's language now in the new covenant of Christ that even Christians still have difficulty with. We need to understand what God is revealing in these matters because they reflect the truths of creation, the order of creation and the order of redemption. So that when St. Paul is writing in his letter to the Ephesians, he says that, yes, wives must be subject to their husbands, but he says both husband and wife must be subject to each other out of reverence for Christ. It is mysterious, but in the Old Testament, through the prophets, God, in speaking of a Messiah, the Anointed One to come, spoke of how this Chosen One would be husband to Israel. God spoke of Israel in a spousal kind of way. In forming a covenant with his people, God revealed to Israel that she was a bride to him, and that in a mysterious way, God was husband, bridegroom. Now, they could not have completely understood the meaning of this. Only in the new covenant of Christ do we understand that God is that bridegroom, that in a certain kind of way, all creatures, all human beings, men and women alike, are bride of God, the one bridegroom. There is only one bridegroom, definitively speaking, and he is Christ. And we are spouses of the Holy Spirit. We are brides of Christ. We must be faithful to him, subject ourselves to him. So St. Paul, in speaking of this matter of the married woman, the spouse, the bride, in relationship to her husband, is using a very effective analogy or comparison. In the first place, as Israel would have understood, she is bound to her husband and can have no other, unless, of course, her husband dies, in which case she can enter into a covenant with another. In addition to this, she as bride was to be faithful to that husband and also subject herself in a proper kind of way. Well, the comparison is to the law. So the first husband, then, is the old law. But now St. Paul does something very clever with this comparison. He knows that the Jews would have, the Jewish Christians would have been upset if he had said that the law is the one who dies. In fact, he can't say that because the law, there is a way in which the law stands forever. Because divine revelation, the truths God reveals, are forever. 
So notice what he says in verse 4. In the same way you brothers, through the body of Christ, he says you have become dead. They are the ones who have died. Remember, he has just finished telling us in the previous chapters how when we enter into baptism, he is speaking to baptized Christians, that we have entered into the death of Christ. We now have died to our old way of life. We have died to sin. We have died to flesh. We have died to the old covenant, which was a covenant of original sin, which was a covenant of bondage or slavery to sin because the Spirit had not yet been sent to set us free. This is why Christ comes, after all, to set us free. So what he says is, you, my brothers and sisters, through the body of Christ, have become dead to the old law, and so now you are able to belong to someone else. They now can enter into this new covenant. And who is this someone else? Him who was raised from the dead to make us live fruitfully for God. Because remember, in entering into, into the mysteries of Christ, we are inserted into the person of Christ, the body of Christ, and in this one flesh union with regard to the nuptial covenant, which God spoke about from the beginning also, we now, as brides of Christ, share in his spirit so that we can have a strength and an enlightenment that we, we otherwise would not have if we did not have this one flesh union. So he concludes then at the end of verse 6 by saying, And so we are in a new service, that of the Spirit, and not in the old service of a written code. Now we recall how in his letter to the Galatians, he uses a different kind of analogy, but he's explaining the same matter. He talks of how Israel, how we as man, are destined to be sons of God. We are sons of the Father, but as children, young children living in the household of the master of the Father, we may be heirs of the Father's inheritance, but as young children we're immature. We haven't learned enough, we're not capable enough to come into that inheritance and possess it. So the Father in his wisdom places a tutor one of his own servants, so to speak, over the heir to teach and to protect the child until that child is ready to, to come into possession of his inheritance. So what does he write in his letter to the Galatians? An heir, St. Paul explains, during the time while he is still under age, is then no different from a slave. The boy feels like a servant or a slave or a person of no standing in his father's house, even though he is the owner of all the property. He is under the control of guardians and administrators until the time fixed by his father, until the time is complete, until he is ready. So too with us, as long as we are under age, he is describing the condition of man of Israel under the former covenant, enslaved yet to the elemental principles of the world. It is at this point in the letter to the Galatians when he goes into that passage we know so well, 
when the completion of time came. In the fulfillment, in the completion of time, when the time was right, God sent his son, born of a woman, born a subject to the law, to redeem the subjects of the law so that we might become sons, so that we might become like the sons, so that we can come into that inheritance. So that when we look at this, the law then is like a tutor. Now, under the law, Israel understood that the law felt like a law of bondage. It was oppressive to them. That was their experience of the law, especially as the law developed. In its original revealed form, of course, it's the Ten Commandments, which God gives to Moses. Now, why does God reveal the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue? Because man, sinful man, fallen man, could not read the law on his heart. God creates man and writes the truth upon his heart. We should be able to read it. But once we have original sin, once we are fallen, once we are under this law of concupiscence, so to speak, it's very difficult for us, even when we know what is good and right, to carry it out and to do it. And what happened in the beginning of time is that without that explicit law, man became more and more wicked, more sinful, more perverse and corrupt until it was very difficult. His intellect became so darkened and his will so disordered that he was corrupted. And so God explicitly reveals in its most fundamental principle the law so that man can know it with certainty and also to make clear that if man does not obey the truth written on his heart, he will destroy himself. He will die. He will enter destruction. And so for Israel, they also knew that because they had this law to live under and because they had such a difficult time obeying it, they felt as if the law brought death in a certain way it did. This is exactly what St. Paul is talking about when he says, if it had not been for the law, in verse 7, I should not have known what sin was. Israel knew better than any other nation on the face of the earth what sin was. And after the Ten Commandments are revealed, Israel, in her wisdom, through her prophets and sages, comes to understand how each of those commandments is carried out. We have a similar thing now. One can pick up the Catechism and read Part 3, the third section, which is on our life in Christ. And it's really a walk through the Ten Commandments in their completeness. Well, if a person has never done that, a person may know the Ten Commandments, be able to reiterate them and understand them in their basic way. But all of a sudden, when we read those pages, we become keenly aware of the many ways that we transgress the law of God. We didn't realize that when God says, you must honor your father and your mother, and when he says, you shall not kill, we didn't understand all that is demanded of us in honoring our parents, in honoring authority. We didn't understand fully all the different ways that we strike at another 
in how we speak and how we work and how we act and how we live, that killing is a much broader transgression than simply to put a knife in another person, literally or physically. And all of a sudden, we feel the magnitude, the weight of the law coming down upon us. Now, of course, we live in the New Testament of Christ, so we've been given the Holy Spirit. But in the former age, in the Old Testament, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So that, even when there were good people who wanted to obey God, they had a struggle. Imagine, take this example. Imagine that there is a household with children and the parents have no rules, no laws, no regulations to guide those children. So the children grow up with what the world would look at as complete freedom to do whatever they want. Other kids might describe the children in that household as they're free to do anything they want. And so they have no curfew, they can stay out all night, carousing if they want, they can eat junk food, swear, be promiscuous, they can neglect their studies, they never have to clean up after themselves. They live a completely reprobate life, and yet in a fallen world, one could look at them and say they have freedom to do whatever they want, as if they have some kind of liberty that others might desire. But the opposite could not be more true about their situation. Because they are abusing their freedom, they are living in sin, they are indulging their passions, indulging the cravings of the flesh, and so their freedom is not freedom at all. They are completely enslaved to sin and corruption. So imagine that at some point the parents wake up and say, look at the sinful lives, look at what's happening with our children and the way they're going. So they decide that they must reveal to them the basic laws for them to live as decent people. So they put on a large tablet 10 laws of the household that those children must obey, telling them if you don't obey these, there will be severe punishment. Now this would be similar to what God's people understood in the Old Covenant, because he said if you break these laws, you will incur death you will incur punishment of some sort. So in this way, for the one who wants to live as he wishes, the law becomes something which is oppressive and binding and punitive. The law is viewed as something which brings grief and even death. It's as if people would say, if I didn't have the law, I wouldn't feel so awful all the time. Now, tied to this is the matter of concupiscence, the battle between the flesh and spirit that man has had to contend with ever since the fall. So what we have is, in Israel, for example, certainly there were those who went, who went the way of sin, but there were also many God-fearing people who wanted to obey God. Now, this obedience initially it's true in the spiritual life. Initially, our relationship with God begins where we feel more like a small creature of nothingness. We are servile. We have a fear of God that is not 
The true kind of fear, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is a servile fear. There are those who will obey laws simply because they fear the punishment. They don't have a loving relationship with wisdom, with goodness, with truth. But there are those who come to understand that the laws written into the created order, written into what it means to be a human being, a creature of God, that these laws are put in place. They are so because these laws guide and protect us. Even Israel understood that the law was a kind of hedge or fence around the household of God to protect the children from getting lost out in that wild and dangerous world. And so they wanted to obey, but the more they understood God as a God who is good and wise and loving, and that they wanted to obey him, they wanted to be good children, so to speak, they begin to move from that attitude of servile fear into a loving fear of God, which is what predisposes one, prepares one to receive that grace of sonship. Because what the Father wants is to be in a loving relationship with the Son. The Son who loves and who obeys, not because he's afraid of the punishment or avoiding, the one who obeys the law, not because he just doesn't want to get caught doing something wrong, but simply because he loves and trusts the Father. In a sense, we could say that person loves then himself in a correct way, because he sees that there is a law of goodness and truth in which we have been created or made. So this is why St. Paul then, when he speaks of the function of the purpose of the law, because he's about to remind us, he says, yes, it's true that many people experience the law as death. The law brings death, but he said, the law from the beginning, the law came from God. Therefore, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is spiritual. That would be like saying the truth brings death. Such a thing is not possible. What St. Paul says is, it is sin that brings death. It is the fact that we disobey the law because it is the very fact that we even desire to go the way of the flesh when we commit wrong. And even in that moment, we know it's not right. We know it's something wrong, but we feel like, I just can't help myself. I just, I, I, there I was doing this. And we sense that we're following these imperfect desires of the flesh, of our passions, our mind, and St. Paul is describing this, he said, our mind knows the law is good and holy. Our mind even loves the law, but our flesh does not. As he says in another place in his letter to the Galatians, when he exhorts us to live according to the Spirit, he says, then you will no longer yield to the cravings of the flesh. He says, the desires of the flesh are always in opposition to the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit in opposition to the flesh. They are one against the other in opposition. So, where he's speaking here, in verse 9 he says, When there was no law, I used to be alive. That I is, perhaps Paul personally, 
but he is speaking in terms of the human race. He says, as we all know, when there was no revealed law, I felt as if I was alive because we could live as we wished. There was nothing that warned us about the death we were, we were incurring. But when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. The commandment was meant to bring life, but I found it brought death. And he goes on to say, but it is not the law that brought death. So then the law is holy, and what it commands is holy and upright and good. Does that mean that something good resulted in my dying? Out of the question. It is sin that does this. So the law under the Old Testament is holy, it is good, it is spiritual, but it is yet imperfect. Christ will come and fulfill the law, and he will give us a new and higher standard, as we're going to discover in the next question. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the topic, The Old Law, Imperfect but Good, and then she will move into The New Law, Spirit, Grace, and Freedom. And now, back to Dr. George. The other problem with the law, and this is in comparison to the law as a tutor, the law was like a tutor in that it taught Israel right from wrong, it enlightened Israel, and it also protected Israel, and it commanded, it guided Israel to do the good. But in fact, the tutor, the teacher, could not infuse that knowledge into his students. Imagine how often a teacher in teaching students would almost wish that he or she could just infuse what it is he or she is trying to explain to the students in the classroom if, if he could just infuse it into their minds. The tutor under the Old Covenant could not do this. Our new tutor, the Holy Spirit, can. We have infused knowledge, infused wisdom, infused understanding. We receive this in baptism and again in confirmation. The other thing the tutor could not do, it could show the good to be done, but could not of itself give the strength to do so, to fulfill the law. Under the Old Covenant, the law could show Israel what they had to do, but could not give Israel the strength to do it. In the new law, under the law of the Spirit and the law of grace, we receive the strength we need in order to actually fulfill the law. Therefore, the old law was a first stage on the way to the kingdom, as the Church tells us in the Catechism. What does the old law do? What do the Ten Commandments continue to do, even in the present day? For those who at least know minimally the Ten Commandments, even if they don't know well the Gospel of Christ, what Christ has revealed in his person, the law, the Ten Commandments, prepares and disposes us for conversion. It's always calling us to conversion and also to faith in the Savior God. You see, the law was a preparation. Paul understood, perhaps better than most, because Paul fully knew the law, and not only the Ten Commandments, 
but he knew the entire code of holiness in all of its laws. Literally, they had hundreds of laws attached to the Ten Commandments explaining what it meant explicitly to carry out the commandments, not unlike we can read today. Paul tried to carry the law out perfectly in his person, and he experienced even then, although he managed to do pretty well, but the Lord revealed to him when he was in the presence of Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the road to Damascus, he fell to the ground. He fell from his high horse, so to speak, because he had to know deep in his heart he could not make himself right in the eyes of God. There was this groaning within man, within Israel under the Old Testament, waiting for the spirit that God had promised with the sending of the Messiah. Now he speaks of this struggle in chapter 7, and Israel experienced this in a particular way in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, this struggle, this battle against concupiscence, God has not taken from us. Yes, he could have done so, but in his wisdom he did not, because there is so much for us to gain in collaborating with God in bringing to completion our sanctification. God doesn't treat us like puppets, or we're not like spiritual robots. We respond to grace, we collaborate with grace. Our dignity has everything to do with the fact that God wants us to be collaborators with him in our own sanctification. We collaborate. There is a certain collaboration in our justification. The church uses that very phrase in her doctrines, that in baptism we are justified, but God's work in us is not complete. And so he invites us to work with him through grace. And the share we have in Christ's glory at the end of time is also very much connected to this, because we have fought the good fight in grace. So this struggle he speaks about towards the end of chapter 7 is something we still experience under the New Covenant. Paul certainly experienced it under the Old. And now he says, while I'm acting as I do not want to, I still acknowledge the law is good. He understood. The problem wasn't the law. The problem is always the sin in us. He says, it is as if it is not myself acting, but the sin which lives in me, though the will to do what is good is in me. The power to do it is not. He says, the good thing I want to do, I never seem to do. And the evil thing that I don't want to do, that is what I do. So I find this rule, that for me, where I want to do nothing but good, evil is always close at my side. We experience, even in the state of grace, this continuing battle between flesh and the spirit. But we must engage in the battle because by engaging it, by receiving grace, this is how we grow in holiness. This is how we share in the victory of Christ, which he has won for us. He concludes them by saying, what a wretched man I am. We feel this way sometimes when we fall into sin. And he says, who will rescue me from this body doomed to death? Well, he knows the answer. He is bringing us to this answer because 
He is about to talk about it in the next chapter. The answer is, of course, God. Thanks be to him, St. Paul says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is in the person of Christ, only in the person of Christ, in this new law, this new law of love, this law of grace, this law of freedom, and that we will win that victory. So he begins chapter 8 then by saying, Condemnation, therefore, will never come to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came to set us free. It is for freedom that he came to free us from sin and death. The entire preparation under the Old Covenant, time and time again, God spoke to Israel, promising a Messiah who would let the captives go free. Those who are in prison, he would set free. Those who are in bondage to sin. Now, we have entered this new covenant in Christ, which is a covenant of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit that makes us free. Now, we are not, as St. Paul tells us in many places in his letters, we must not live according to the flesh. It is not that the flesh is bad or evil. Of course it is not. The flesh, the body, is good. The body is sacred. The body is part of the mystery of man, of the human person. But fallen man succumbs to the desires of the flesh, the cravings of the flesh. And what happens is that in his free will, which is disordered, he seeks after the things of the flesh. The, the sensitive appetites, our passions, our emotions, can be in the undisciplined person like a child who throws a temper tantrum all the time, wanting to be satisfied, wanting to be satiated, wanting to be comforted, wanting instant gratification, wanting this, wanting that, always demanding, always making itself known always hollering out, even when we are trying to follow the promptings of the Spirit. So God, in making us into children of God, has to make new our flesh. And this too is part of the mystery of the resurrection. We are created new in baptism, as we talked about in the last lesson. And this has profound implications for our life as Christians on earth. We may not see a different flesh, but we carry in us the seed of immortality. We carry within us the resurrection. This is why St. Paul says that as we go through hardships and trials and suffering and so forth, we are being transformed from glory into glory. But it is a glory that will be revealed only at the resurrection. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be continuing the new law, Spirit, Grace, and Freedom. And now, back to Dr. George. We are being transformed from glory into glory, but it is a glory that will be revealed only at the resurrection.
Now, to understand this, let's begin here with verse 14, where St. Paul says clearly, all who are guided by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have been given the Spirit, of course, in our baptism. He says, for what you received was not the spirit of slavery to bring you back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, it is the beloved Son who calls out, Abba, Father. It's not the servant, the slave, who lives in fear. It's a whole new relationship. The Spirit himself joins with our spirit to bear witness that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God. Our inheritance is God himself. We are co-heirs with Christ, and as co-heirs, we can call God the Father, Christ's Father, we now can call Father. We can only do that united to Christ. We can only do that with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we do call God Father. But he finishes verse 17 by saying, All of this is so provided we share in his suffering. We must be configured to the person who gives us access to the Father, to his life, but to what he revealed in the whole of his life, to his passion and to his death, so that we can share in his glory. That is why he concludes, rightly, all that we suffer in the present time is as nothing in comparison with the glory which is destined to be revealed to us. This is how we must look on what remains in life. After baptism, it's not like life becomes easy and simple and we just pass on through smoothly. In fact, as Christians, we experience the fact that the more we live our life in Christ and the Holy Spirit, it seems to us that the more trials and hardships and persecution we encounter and the more difficult life gets. This is part of the mystery that God reveals in the New Covenant. So we need to understand a couple things about it. The first has to do with the new creation, which we have alluded to in previous lessons. From the very beginning, God envisioned the glory of the new creation in Christ. This was his plan from the beginning. And the glory of this new creation would have at its center man, man with a capital M. In other words, this whole thing would be brought to completion in the Son of God, the person of Christ. Now man, created man, is predestined, as scripture tells us, as the church tells us, we are predestined to reproduce the image of God's Son made man. That is our destiny, that is our glory, to reproduce the image we are supposed to be as perfectly configured as possible to God's Son, the Word incarnate, God made man. That is our wholeness. That is our, our glory. That is our happiness. That is our heaven. This is why, as the church fathers tell us, this is why the Word became man. This is why the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word, 
and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. St. Athanasius, who was one of the early fathers of the church, is so bold as to say, the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Now, that is a stunning statement. And if we are astonished by it, then his words have had their proper effect. He wants us to begin to grasp. He wants us to be amazed, utterly amazed, at what God has done for us. As St. Peter tells us, we have, in the mystery of Christ, the Word became flesh so that we could become partakers in the divine nature, so that we could be sharers in the divine nature, so that we could have communion with God, so we could be truly like God, so that we could be, Jesus in one point in the scriptures, quotes the scripture and says, as scripture says, you should be called gods. We will have, we will participate. We will not be a divine person. Christ is a divine person. But we will be so closely configured to him. We will have the divinity in us. God, the Holy Trinity, dwelling in us. It is utterly amazing. This is our destiny. But we are left on earth and we must carry on with our lives in this groaning and travail. It's very interesting. St. Paul speaks of this and he says, it was not for its own purposes that creation had frustration imposed on it, but for the purposes of him who imposed it. We still are in groaning and travail. But you notice that while the Old Testament was filled with many prayers of lamentation, we do not have the prayers of lamentation in the New Testament. We are not filled with mourning and grief and woe. Yes, we groan. But why do we groan, as Scripture tells us? We groan in hope. We groan because we have tasted, we have glimpsed this marvelous new life, the new creation that we already carry within us, and we want it to be realized here and now. It's that Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray every day that God's kingdom would come. It's that kind of groaning. And so, as he says, the whole creation is waiting with eagerness, St. Paul says, for the children of God to be revealed. It's as if the whole universe is glimpsing this marvelous thing God is doing in recreating these children who will be like God. The whole universe waits upon this to see the realization of God's children. That's us. It's man on the face of the earth. But how does this happen? The flesh is the hinge of our salvation. As we already said, the flesh, the body, is not bad, is not evil. It is the very matter, it's the material of our salvation. Furthermore, then, in addition to understanding this matter of the new creation, we have to understand, we have to look at our model, we have to look at our victory, we have to look at our bridegroom, we have to look at the one who has saved us. We must imitate him. We must live as he lived. And what does he reveal? Look at how Christ begins his public ministry. He inaugurates it with the Sermon on the Mount. And how does he begin? He begins, of course, he is explaining that he is the fulfillment of the law. 
the law is fulfilled. And now he presents a new and higher law. He presents perfect blessedness on earth. That's what the Beatitudes are. The word Beatitude means blessedness. He presents that blessedness. And what is blessedness? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers who stand in the world against hatred and hostility. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of holiness, Jesus says. Now this is not a kind of blessedness that the world can understand. This is the norm of the new law. What is the norm? The norm is, as Jesus himself tells us, love one another as I, your God, have loved you. That's the whole thing. That's a summary of the Beatitudes. It's a summary of the Law and the Prophets. But notice it is a higher, it is a more perfect summation. And we have received the Holy Spirit. This means that in our life with Christ, God has left not only the battle, the spiritual battle with us, but we are in battle. We sense this battle we are caught in with the world and with the values of the world, with a world that wants to go the way of sin. And what happens is that we are hated, we are maligned, we are persecuted. And sometimes we're taken aback by this. We're almost stunned by it as if we have forgotten that we are here in the person of Christ. We have been inserted into the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery is about the suffering and death. It is about love. It is about the sacrifice of one's life, that one would pour one's life out for the sake of the other, that the other might be saved, that the other might be set free. That's the Paschal Mystery. And that's why St. Peter, in describing this, he says, My dear friends, do not be taken aback by the testing of fire which is taking place among you, as though something strange were happening to you. We act this way sometimes. He says, but insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, he says, be glad. He tells us to be glad. This is the, the beatitude. This is the blessedness. Why be glad? So that you can enjoy a greater gladness when Christ's glory is revealed. Because we go the way of Christ, we shall share in his glory. He says, if you are insulted for bearing the name of Christ, blessed are you. Why are we blessed? Why is it when the world hates us, when the world lies about us, when the world misrepresents who we are and what we stand for? It's because the world recognizes the Spirit of God. As St. Peter says, it's because upon you rests the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory. The world recognizes something. If the world does not hate or persecute us, dismiss us at all, it is because they don't recognize Christ in us and the Spirit dwelling in us. So that we are called as Christians, we are called to share in Christ's mission, to share in his very passion. This is what St. Paul precisely is saying at the end of this chapter 8, when he reminds us that if we could just understand this, we would not be taken aback because we would know then that all things, no matter what happens, come to good 
for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, who are these? It's really everyone on the face of the earth, everyone God creates. When he says that we have been predestined, as we already said, man is predestined to reproduce the image of God's Son. This is true for everyone. So those that God has predestined, he has also called. And those he has called, he has justified. And those he has justified, he has glorified and continues to glorify. St. Paul then says, what are we to say about all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is no one. What's the world against us if God is for us? Who can bring a charge against God's chosen ones, he says? It's God who has acquitted us. We have been acquitted by God in baptism. We've been forgiven our sins. We, if we are configured to Christ, if we live the Beatitudes, the norm, if we, if we are like love incarnate, if we imitate love incarnate in ourselves, God will, God will protect us. Nothing can happen to us even if we must suffer and die. This is the mystery that he is talking about. So he says, can anything, can anyone at all separate us from the love of Christ? He gives the examples, hardships, distress, persecution, lack of food, lack of clothing, threats. He says, as scripture says, now he quotes very interesting lines from the Psalms. For your sake we are being slain all the day long. He's quoting the psalmist, which really this quote is about Christ. For your sake, the sake of the world, we are being slain all the day long. We are looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. But this is precisely the fulfillment of God's plan so that others might be brought to salvation, so that the kingdom can be increased to the glory of God. That's why he says, no, we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. And that's why he concludes by saying, I am certain, and his words we must make our own. He says, I am certain then that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we must proclaim, because we have, we carry in us the resurrection. We must proclaim the crucified and risen Lord to the world by how we live, and by how we suffer, and by how we die, for the glory of God, and for the sake of his holy name. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, which include the following two topics, God's choice of Israel, and second, God's mercy toward the Gentiles. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church. Thank you.